Welcome back, everyone, to Drunk Bible Study Bonus Edition, where we're talking about all the stuff that we didn't, you know, figure out in the uh, <laughs> the episode. We were like, what is that? I don't know. It's it's something, all right. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. We're excited to be back. Uh, it was all my fault. I was in Vegas, and here I am. We're back, and we're talking about things that are unsinful, like the Bible, and like the Garden of Eden, where, wait, was this in there? Were they referencing the Garden of Eden? Why Why did we even care about this? I forgot already. <laughs> You're the one who brought up the question of if the Garden of Eden still exists it's, or not. It's because in the message, he talks about Got it. Thank the like, you. godly people, I guess, being like trees by the water is what it was in, right. the, in our like version. Like a tree in Eden is what and he then said. He said, yeah, exactly. Something about Eden. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that prompted the question, does the Garden of Eden even exist today? And Dedeker brought up that in the uh, Farmer's Almanac, they talk about <laughs> the, the old fact. Farmer's Almanac. Old Farmer's Almanac. Uh-huh. There's the four rivers. The four rivers, the, um, what are they? The Euphrates, the Tigris, the Pison, and the Gihon. And the Tigris and the Euphrates are already, like, they're well-known rivers. They flow through Iraq today. Um, but the other two rivers, they're unknown. People don't know where they are or if they still exist. They don't still exist, technically. And, okay, I looked on historyofyesterday.com, and they talked about how the fact that the Garden of Eden, it does not exist. If it did exist, then it doesn't exist in the, the manner and the fashion that it did at the time because of the Great Flood, which is a really interesting point. Oh, I guess point. we forgot okay. about that yeah. very important exactly. point of the narrative. <laughs> exactly. That the Great Flood, like, took it and pushed it all away, and so it's gone now. And it's potentially still, the place is still there, but not how we expected it to look with all these beautiful plants and I'm assuming butterflies and does frolicking and stuff like that. <laughs> like, that's how I see it in my uh, head. Uh-huh. It doesn't exist like that anymore because we were bad, bad boys and girls and we caused the Great Flood to occur. So that's interesting. Yeah, geographical changes have altered the entire earth and also altered the area in question is what this says. So that's interesting. Um, Also, the fact that scripture does not indicate that Adam built any structure or created any tools while in the garden. So we can't like have like evidence of tools that we like find. I see, no archaeological evidence. I see. Yeah, exactly. I like that as well. Um, So that's very interesting. But this person also said that in order for the existence of the garden to make sense and implicitly for this article, we must consider that what is said in the Bible is true and not just a legend. So they kind of imply that like, maybe it's just a legend. Right, we have to be thinking that the Garden of Eden was an actual physical place and that this wasn't an allegory or a metaphor. Exactly. Or humankind. Right, to even ask the question if it still exists, we have to kind of have already taken for granted that that it was literally a real place, yeah. Yes, and I just want to point out also from um, Jean Duleman from who wrote this book called The History of Paradise. Uh, they said that uh, some thought of paradise as existing in a remote part of the earth 
where it was preserved rather in its original state, but had become inaccessible except to travelers possessing an unusual passport and an angelic guide. Others thought that paradise had been removed from our earth and transported to heaven. So that's another possibility of where it might be. A passport. A passport and an angelic guide. Interesting. Got some interesting lore. Yeah, I Indeed, like from it's History fun. of Paradise. Wow. By Jean Dulemont. Dulemont. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Well, so I tried to look up stuff about morning rituals and burials and things like that. And I feel like a Not lot like of it— like the hashtag, like, morning ritual. Yeah, hashtag by, morning ritual. Yeah. yeah, I have my bulletproof coffee. Yeah, by all coffee, the influencer. And then, yeah. Exactly. And then I, like, do 20 minutes of meditation and write my bullet journal. No. Yeah, exactly. Bullet coffee, yeah. bullet journal. Yeah, that's the, that's the combo. <laughs> no, uh, so, yeah. Basically, in trying to look this up, we've already gotten a lot of this information before. Like, like we talked about in the episode of Job scratching his skin and stuff with the pottery— We've learned that shaving one's head when you're mourning is a common thing, Mm -hmm. as well as wearing sackcloth. We've come across a lot. And um, and then also this thing that that maybe is what Job was getting at. It is important to remember that Job was not an Israelite. He was not a Jew, even. I forgot about... Really? We don't know what he was. He was kind of from... Really? It was described as him being kind of from this other land. But he liked God. And remember, chronologically, chronologically, supposedly, Job predates the Israelites, too. That's why we read him so Um, early on. So... Whoa. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So anyway, lots of of mysteries there. But um, what I did try to look up, though, is kind of the history of... or, Or sort of what we do know from the Bible. Just sort of a recap here. So, first of all, in Deuteronomy, uh, Jacob dies, and there was specifically talk about the Israelites grieving for Moses for 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Yeah. So, this idea of like a prolonged mourning period, especially for someone of note, was, was very important. Um, let's see, when Jacob, Emily, Jacob. Yes, when Jacob That's died, you wanted from him. Yes, Joseph. <laughs> uh, Joseph and the other kids had a seven-day mourning period for their father. Uh, when Aaron died, it was thirty days that we mourned. Whoa! Right, so clearly for like important people, there's this longer thing. Okay. Uh, this says here that uh, one of the common uh, mourning things to do is is ripping your clothes. Which we've definitely come across a lot, right? That like, and then you really like what garments. you're wearing. That's how you. Well, maybe that's why you big... put on sackcloth and then you rip that. So you I put see. On something okay. crappy, I see. so that you can rip it. Right. Got it. Like your mm-hmm. your painting shirt or something. Yeah, <laughs> your yeah, painting exactly. smock. The shirt <laughs> that you painted. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh And then also, just as far as burials go, it's very important. Jewish law requires that a person is buried the same day as their death. And then a seven-day mourning period commences. Uh, so that's that's kind of part of it. So while you're mourning, and now this is hard, it's hard to identify like when these things came along because sort of modern Jewish law and modern Jewish mourning, I think is trying to be similar to these things before, but I do know it's changed over time and, and I don't quite know. But specifically traditional grooming stops. So you don't... Um, right, it's like sitting shiva. 
Right. That's why you cover up your mirrors and stuff that it's yeah. really intentional about. You Like, this is not a time for you to be worried about that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The, the wording of this article from gotquestions.org says, traditional grooming stops, as do, quote, marital relations. Wink. Oh, nobody, Wink. Nobody be, nobody be doing that Whoa. during Shiva. No entertainment and no study. It's like if you're a student, you've just got to, like, take time off, I guess. Not. Um, and sometimes also putting off getting your haircut. Interestingly, not shaving it, but just don't get a haircut during this time, Uh, potentially Mm -hmm. even for as long as 30 days. Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's not that long to me, but maybe to you. Yeah. So something else to sort of put into context here is kind of when we are, and that's that in the timeline, Jeremiah, where we are now, is around five 88-ish BCE, right? So what that means and and why that's important is that that means we're kind of on the very, we're past the Bronze Age and we're in the Iron Age now, or at least, you know, the the beginnings and ends of things like the Bronze Age and the Iron Age have like hundreds of years of overlap, uh, depending on Mm -hmm. which scholars you're talking to. But that's kind of the period that we're in is sort of more, more Iron Age, which is the last of the ages it goes stone age bronze age iron age the stone age is super duper long bronze age is kind of long and iron age is relatively very short though still hundreds of years um but so this is getting a little bit into new testament jewish traditions which is then going to be you know 600 years after this or so Mm -hmm. but this is talking about the Jewish mourning period traditionally featured professional mourners who would play instruments and chant dirges. Yes. And it kind of made me think of David writing that psalm that, like, he was the professional mourner that they hired who came and did he this. He did really poorly. Weirdly erotic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't fulfill his duty, and I think he wouldn't get paid, but that's just me. Yeah. I thought this was fantastic, too. It says rabbinical rules allowed for even the poorest person to have at least two flute players provided, along, oh, along with one mourning woman. So two two flute players oh, and deal. one woman crying oh is the minimum. Even the poorest people supposedly could get that. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's like partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> right? Two flute players playing, one crying woman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's what I found. Wow. And so, it's, yeah, I guess the point in what we were just reading today was just that no one's going to even mourn you. They're just going to leave you there to rot. And you're not going to get buried, which as we just saw, is important because you need to get buried the same day that you die. So Same day? Yeah. That's pretty dang quick. I guess the jackals will get you otherwise. Well, when you're living in a hot climate, That's yeah, true. it's going to be a rough time. Yeah. You don't it's going to be a real rough time. Around. Right. It's not going to be yeah. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Wow, okay, let's yeah. talk about writing and writing technology. Oh, yeah. This oh, yeah, so your cool. favorite. Are you writing with diamonds? Yeah. We're writing with iron pens with a tip made of diamond. Yeah. We're just wow. scratching it right in there. Jeez. Yikes. This is exciting to me. A couple of years ago, I went through a weird phase where I was re- I read this book called Technosis, and then I also read this book. Um, so Technosis is about kind of through human history, our intersection of technology with the spiritual and with the mystical. Um, okay. And I also read this book called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, which is about um, how we, you know, switching to alphabet-based literacy as opposed to oral tradition 
also kind of coincided with switching away from matriarchy and goddess worship. And they're kind of like looking at the intersections of that, Fascinating. which is also yes. super fascinating. So this is a topic I remember now when you read this and we yeah. talked about it a lot. It's all coming back. Yeah, <laughs> this is a topic that's bounced around <laughs> cool. in my brain for quite a while. And I really like this quote from the Oxford University Press blog. Quote, writing is a, quote, machine to supplement both the fallible and limited nature of our memory. It stores information over time, and it also carries our bodies over space, as in it carries information over distances. So the thing that when I was reading Technosis, the thing that blew my mind was thinking about writing as a technology and thinking about mm. truly how revolutionary that is, mm. right? Yeah. Where you can write something, you can tell a story, you can tell your own story, and it's going to be there even after you die. Yeah. Which when we're relying on oral tradition, like, sure, we can tell the story orally and hope that people remember it, but there's nothing really physical there that that helps carry that over. And there's nothing really physical there to hand over to somebody. And so that's actually something that's really, really important in our evolution, in our human history. For sure. Well, yeah, I mean, just the fact that human memory is so fallible mm-hmm. and that and that studies have shown that every time you remember something, you make your memory of it less accurate um, because your mind fills in little details. And then the next time you remember it, your brain can't tell the difference between the details you filled in and the ones that were there originally. And so it's like, yeah, the, the, can you imagine that going though from that's all we have to now you kind of have a way of going back and seeing the original? That would have been mm. mind-blowing change. Yeah. Yeah. Really now, cool. to talk about writing technology specifically in ancient Israel. So in 1910, there was this huge excavation in Samaria where the archaeologists found 102 different pot shards with writing on them mm. that were written oh, wow. in Hebrew. And they're dated from about 865 to 735 BCE. And all of the text that is legible are basically receipts recording like huh. like transmission specifically transmission of luxury goods this is, generally. This has all so been like, in my in that children of Baal book that I that I was reading. Oh, has it yeah. really? These, oh these shit. Ancient pot shards the did this research. that were just like yeah. grocery lists and like random things that rather than these like precious monumentous things, it's just like, yeah, they just used shards of pots to write down whatever they needed to write down. Wow. Yeah, yeah so a lot of the articles that I was reading pointed out the fact that something that's really important about writing is that it means that leaders in Israel can then take records and they can collect taxes. Uh, okay. Right? And, uh, you know, that's huge. That's huge. When you can taxes. actually keep, like, population records, you can actually keep records of, like, how much wealth is in a particular province or not, and then you can actually do accurate calculations of how much tax to collect. So yeah. that's... Wild. That's a little bit of a bittersweet thing. Yeah. Uh, they mentioned the fact that writing enabled more regular communications between different settlements and tribes in Israel, mm. which resulted in probably more unification of identity as an Israelite. And that it also gave rise to a specific social class of scribes, right. people whose job it was to be able to do that. Now, what is interesting is there's a little bit of controversy and disagreement over how literate everyone was at that time. You know, there are some people who suggest that maybe it was just scribes. Some people suggest maybe it was just the elites, maybe just the priests. However, there's also a compelling argument to suggest that actually maybe there may have been more people who could read and write than we perhaps would assume at that time. 
One of the arguments for that being the fact that the Hebrew alphabet has 22 characters, which is mm. different from, say, like the Egyptian or the Mesopotamian alphabet, which had hundreds, hundreds of characters. It's like the difference between the English alphabet and like Chinese kanji yeah. or Japanese kanji. Right where when you only need to learn 22 letters, that's a lot easier to teach someone yeah. from an early age than thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of hieroglyphics or iconographies or Jeez. things like that. <laughs> and also looking at these pot shards and other evidence of writing that we have from the time, basically they're able to track, particularly in um, military writing, they're able to track that it's like people who are writing these things, like it was many, many different writers, but they could track them both from like, essentially the top of the chain of command to the bottom of the chain of command that it seems like people could write and mm. were transmitting these messages. Right. And wow. so that seems to suggest... It wasn't just scribes. Maybe literacy. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't just scribes. Maybe it wasn't just the elites. Maybe it actually permeated many, many more That's really social cool. classes than yeah. these would suggest. And this is funny. So I found this article on thelampstand.com <laughs> about writing. And they were talking about you know, how writing specifically is mentioned in Exodus about specifically, you know, writing and keeping historical records. And this person is saying that Genesis doesn't really explicitly mention writing. However, we may have the text of a legal contract in Genesis 23, 17 that's documenting Abraham's purchase of land to bury his wife, Sarah. And so that old chestnut comes up again. Of course. Where they're suggesting that maybe that was actually put into writing, but we're not sure. Wow. Although maybe it wasn't because considering the fact that Abraham so many times was like, I paid for that land. That land is mine. Right. That yeah. land belongs to me. Yes. The fact he had to keep reminding people he didn't just have a, a receipt that he could <laughs> show That's people. True. Maybe that implies we were still in a little bit more of an oral tradition. Right. Really got to reiterate wow. that over and over. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I got. Writing, man. Writing. Love amazing. It. Amazing indeed. Well, that's And cool. so I guess, um, yeah, you know, basically as far as the actual technology, clay tablets, you know, and and clay things that we're like writing into the clay. Obviously, we're, we don't necessarily have like paper production that's widespread at this point. And so, right. But so, so, so yeah. yeah, so it's not any kind of ink on any surface, it's engraving essentially. And so, that's why a pen made of iron with a diamond tip would be really good at that. Would probably be really good. Although, from what I've gleaned as well, you would potentially. I think this was something I read about in later, like in Greek history, where a scribe might have a tablet that had soft clay on right. it. They mm-hmm. would use that. That was essentially like their Etch-a-Sketch. Yeah, yeah. Right? To be able to take notes, stuff that didn't need to be permanently documented mm-hmm. so that you could write in the soft clay and have your notes, but then you could kind of re-fashion the yeah. soft clay at the end of the day to... Mm. to yeah. It's clever, right? Because right? writing in like yeah. permanently into stone... Or even a clay tablet would take a lot more work, probably a lot more. Oh, for sp- sure. Scratching. Be rough. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sketching. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we got. Well, cool. Amazing. I'm excited to see if The Rock has more smack talking to do next week. I'm sure. Eventually, eventually, we are going to get to the end of the smack talk section of Jeremiah and then into the more sort of autobiographical section about his own life. So I'm interested to see when we get there. But I think we've still got a little ways to go of of Smack Talk. So maybe we'll need to listen to more of The Rock to get us pumped for that. You got to give us some more options with that. Okay. And we got to get excited with okay. it. Sounds okay. good. <laughs> Lovely. Well, we'll see you for more Smack Talk next week. We cannot wait. See you on the other side. <laughs>